to 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 14 to 17. I just want to talk about a text, if you like, or half a text from that passage. We who are many are one body. So uh, there's very much double emphasis to what I want to get out from these verses, a sort of uh, vertical horizontal application. We who are many are one body. So let's just read those few verses in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. I want to break bread this morning particularly with these verses in our minds and just uh, meditating on them for a moment and then drawing from them as we break bread. It's, it's very easy and not wrong that in church life, and I think it's been true of us here in Winchester, we get quite an emphasis on evangelism. That's very natural. We've been doing just ten and uh, that's, that's very appropriate. We look outward. We want to keep mission-focused. Mission We often have an emphasis, which again is okay, on an individual's faith and that comes out again and again, perhaps even as we worship. We're very individually focusing and thinking of what Jesus has done for us. That's fine. We can be challenged about our own personal walk with God. We can even get into church organisation quite a lot and that's happened, I guess, for better or worse, sometimes when we come back into buildings and plan things and and even with changes that we took, began talking about, that gets us a bit of a, a focus on things. But what I want us to do, just as we break bread this morning, is to remember we who are many are one body. And I think that that is a very profound and important truth. Paul wrote it here in, in the book of Corinthians to the Corinthians. And I just think it's good for us to remember that this verse, verse 17, which is really the one I'm I'm focusing on 1 Corinthians 10:17 because there is one loaf we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one loaf. This verse was written to what all commentators agree was a big church. By the time Paul wrote to Corinthians, they probably were thousands of people. We can think these were all uh, tiny groups. Now of course the reality was there were tiny groups. They were in house groups often and house fellowships across the city. And they would vary in size. Some of those wouldn't have been tiny. The houses might have been big houses with wealthy people. Chloe is a wealthy lady mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I know that because I've called our daughter Chloe and it's the only place you find her name at the beginning. And Chloe's house, Chloe was probably a wealthy lady with a big house. There might have been a house church could have been maybe 150, 200 people in a house like that. Especially with servants who'd be saved and all the rest of it and slaves. Nevertheless, in the end, the whole lot are seen as one body uh, in Corinth. And it is a big group of people. As I say, it's got its own challenges. There were organisational challenges. Some really loved Apollos, some liked Paul, some liked Peter. And they quoted that uh, uh, to each other, said, like, I think Peter's better than Paul or, or Apollos. That sort of atmosphere. And yet Paul writes to this church. So we're not writing to some rose-tinted, we're not looking with rose-tinted spectacles, writing some idealistic sort of golden age where no problems. If you read the book of Corinthians, there's plenty of problems there. 
We know that it was a large church, apart from what historians tell us, a bit of common sense really. God said to Paul, I have many people in this city. When you read in Acts the story of the beginnings of the Corinthian church, that's what happens. And I think God probably was telling Paul the truth. So there were many people in that city. It was a big city, probably over half a million people. It's, not, it's a lot bigger than we are used to here in Winchester, bigger than perhaps, putting, perhaps about the size of putting you know, Southampton and Portsmouth together and everything in between. A big city, including slaves, it's estimated five to 600,000 people. And, uh, and, and Paul writes this thing. We know from Acts that uh, when they started the church, something went on very special and it caused a stir, such a big stir that Gallio, the Roman proconsul, got involved in bringing peace to the situation. You can read that in Acts. I think we probably did when we were looking at Acts. So the local Roman official does not get involved if you're talking about 20 people in a corner somewhere. There's something that's causing a stir amongst a number of communities and he, he had to get involved to bring uh, peace to think. The Jews were stirring up trouble. So there was a, something substantial going on. And yet Paul writes very confidently in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we who are many are one body. We're one body. Now we, I don't think we have anything like the battles that the Corinthians had, nor thank God all the weaknesses, but we certainly aren't perfect. We can have you know, factions, you can have tensions, we can just not know each other, we can feel that the church grows and gets too big and stuff like that. We have buildings, perhaps something they didn't contend with in the same way. We have this building, we've got Stanmore Lane, you've got all the stuff we do in them and the things we do. We've planted a church to Southampton not so long ago. We've given people away. We have people serving the wider church all the time, which is a wonderful high calling, by the way. It's a real privilege to have Dave Lockyer out in India, Dave Thompson up at Hook, have a whole bunch of folk at New Day. Um, we're actually big players in the Accelerate um, Bible Weekend. We've got Peter Smith here heading up the team, organising it, frankly, and a number of our people serving there, 150 of us going to it. We're, and I'm actually um, going to Moscow tomorrow to speak at the Moscow Bible Week, and I'll be taking six sessions. I'll be the main speaker at what is a bit like their Accelerate. It'll probably be over 1,000 people from Moscow and just around the Moscow area, New Frontiers Church is gathering for a Bible Week. And uh, I value your prayers, actually, for that. And I'll be going off early tomorrow morning. And, uh, you know, we serve the wider church. So all of these things can make us a little bit fragmented and and busy and and maybe even sometimes like, what is going on? I didn't really realise John was going to Moscow, which I I appreciate that might be true. Um, And all things like that. Now, actually, we have to remember big truths. We who are many are one body. What do I want to say about that? Well, I, I want to unpack those verses just for a few minutes Now, actually, this is the issue of real Christian fellowship. There's a word, some of you will know, koinonia, which is a Greek word, which is used an awful lot in the New Testament. It comes up again and again in the Greek. And sometimes you get another word which is very similar, similar root word. So if you put all that together, you get it used a lot. In English... It's usually translated by a number of different words. And when you read fellowship, partnership, communion, partake, participate, share, you're probably reading a translation of koinonia or some derivative of it from the same root. It's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament. And it does mean sharing, having things in common, being partners together. 
And it's used in the New Testament two ways that I've already hinted at, vertically and horizontally. And it's that that we get in this verse or these few verses. It's a profound truth. I just want to give you a minute or two to unpack it and think about it before we break bread together. The bread and wine is a really helpful aid God's given us to help us understand this two-way thing. It really is helpful. As we each one eat bread from the common loaf, and we have got whole loaves, it's great. Whereas one has to be, a loaf has to be broken, which it will have to be, for us to eat it. That reminds us Jesus had to be broken. And as each one of us eats a bit individually and has, as it were, a share in him, Jesus, so we are linked to the next one or the ones around us who also are eating from the same loaf. They have a share in the same loaf. And actually, a bit of the loaf's in me and a bit of the loaf's in them. And uh, when we go home later, I think I can push the analogy this far, the loaves will have gone home with us, if you like, in our tummies. Um, But I I think there's a sense of that, biblically, that's not irreverent. Uh, There's a sense in which you partake or share or have koinonia with God, first and foremost, and out of that, with through Jesus, you inevitably have a koinonia, a sharing with others who feed on him as well. Then we have to work that out. And of course that is a, a challenge, but it's actually based on a profound spiritual truth. So let's talk for a few moments just about the vertical dimension first. Then I want to talk a few moments about horizontal dimension. So the vertical dimension is perhaps in verse 16 particularly. I think on the screen you might get 16 and 17, but just to remind you. Verse 16, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, a koinonia, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? Now this is really awesome. And it's almost difficult to tread into this truth appropriately and to do it quickly, though I will be having to do it quickly. But it is actually very profound, and I want to to, to be careful almost. Being a Christian, being a real Christian, what the Bible means by a Christian, means that you share in the blood and the body of Christ. You participate in it. You have a koinonia with it, and it's not a light word. It's not a light attachment. You somehow are joined in. You become a partner with Jesus. You partake of him. You have a part of him. It is profound. You share in everything he did and he is. That is what happens when you become a Christian. You put faith in Jesus. You are born again of the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit of God comes into you and renews your heart. You, in a mysterious way, are made new. And in you, God births something. Born again. The Holy Spirit. Jesus used that phrase. The Holy Spirit comes into you and you now are one with him. You have a part with him. You partake of him. I don't know if we can, how we can quite encapsulate it. You're a shareholder in Christ. We do understand what a shareholder is. If you're a shareholder in a company, that is different from just being an employee. You own part of the company. You have a say in what happens, actually, in the company. And its success or its failure is much more immediately and directly linked to you. Uh, your shares go up and down and all the rest of it. Obviously, employees suffer a bit as well, but something is much more intimate and complete if you're a, particularly a, a shareholder of some substance in a company. 
Now, I don't know if that picture helps us over much, but it's there. We are, share, we are part of Christ. Christ is in us. What happens to him happens to us. We are intimately linked with Jesus Christ when we become Christians. This is not a mere human allegiance to a religion, to a system of rules, to a way of living. We are one with Christ. We participate in Christ. We participate in Christ. That's not only taught by Paul. Peter picks it up even almost more profoundly, if I can put it that way, in 2 Peter and uh, 1 verse 4. I think that's uh, on our screen. Thank you. Yeah, 2 Peter 1 4, it says this. Through these promises he's been talking about, through these things he's given us, his ver- sorry, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate. It's that word again, koinonia. You may have a share. You may have a share in the divine nature. Actually, in some of our translations, I think it's true in NASB and the Living Bible, the words we're reading as participate are often translated share, which is a, 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 perhaps a refreshing way to do it. So that in Corinthians it would say, we, get, uh, you know, we share in the blood of Christ. We share in the body of Christ. Well, here, we share in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Share in the divine nature? Dare we say that? That's what the New Testament says. It says when you become a Christian, and it says it in many ways really, God comes into your life. The Holy Spirit, and your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are one with him. You know, Paul, when he's challenging the Corinthians later, says, another point says, you know, how, how can you involve Christ in sin? Don't you understand your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So he's, he's pushing this truth. It's there because it's truth. It's how Christianity is. It's what the faith we believe is, that you have become one with Jesus. And you share, you have koinonia in the divine nature. You become a partner with God. Being a Christian means you have fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God. I mean, I I, I love John Attil reminding us of that prophecy and those phrases about... But, you know, we need provocation. Every one of us can have intimate fellowship with the living God. Do we avail ourselves of it? Do we really understand that he is your father, Abba Father? He is with you. He is near you, closer than a brother. You are one with him. And he who touches you touches him. And, and we, are, we are one with him. We have fellowship with the Father. Well, let's, that leads me on to my next one because the verse, I, w- I want to look at the horizontal dimension as well. And the verse I want to use is, just as a reminder of things, is 1 John 1, 3. So we've looked at Paul and Peter, just by the way. This is the Apostle John. So it's a different apostle. And here he's, he's writing uh, to the church and he says... We proclaim to you, this is, I think, again on your screen, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship, that's koinonia again in the Greek, you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so John is saying, this is what koinonia is. We introduced you to the Father and the Son, and you, we, understood, we had a fellowship with him, and we've shared the word with you, and you've now got fellowship with him. And because you've got fellowship with him, you have fellowship with us. The two are totally linked. In fact, the horizontal depends on the vertical. You can't have real fellowship just by some mental allegiance. You are one because you've fed on the same loaf. And because you've fed on the same loaf, you are one whether you like it or not. You are part of something profound when you become a Christian. 
and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You come into koinonia, fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And therefore, you have fellowship with others who have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So fellowship with God is the source from which Christian fellowship springs. Those two dimensions, vertical and horizontal, are interdependent in a way. They really are. You can't claim to have fellowship with God and not have fellowship with other Christians. It's just a nonsense. And John particularly makes that very clear. You can't do it. You can't say, I'm a Christian, it's me in my corner, I don't need other Christians. That isn't Christianity. You can tell me to your blue in the face, that just isn't it. You are part of something bigger. You have fellowship with the Father and the Son. If truly you do, you inevitably will have a koinonia with Christians. You are one with them. Now you need to work it out. The two are interdependent, as I said, because actually our fellowship with other Christians is an essential part of enjoying and developing our fellowship with the Father and the Son. They are interdependent. You, you are brought into fellowship through your faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes into you. Fellowship with the Father. But you really enjoy it and work it out and indeed its purposes are worked out in a corporate context. That is how Christianity works. So that, for example, in the book of Hebrews, another apostolic writer, of which people aren't sure who it was, uh, wrote it, but another writer, the book of Hebrews, when the faith of the Christians is flagging, the apostle exhorts them in verses 24, uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, meet together, have fellowship, if you like, stir one another up, don't neglect to meet together, encourage one another and love one another and provoke one another to love and good deeds. So basically when you're in trouble, when you're in difficulty, when things are really getting on top of you, the first thing to do is have fellowship with other believers. So often that is exactly what we don't do. And we sometimes, of course you need to draw near to God, that's another sermon on another day, but we sometimes think that's all we need to do. No, no, you do draw near to God, but you also need to draw near to each other. Now that is how it works. It's intimately linked. There's two koinoniers that flow together to make us healthy Christians. So in Acts 2.42, it says the early church devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to koinonia. It, it, they were a church, they were the body of Christ, they devote, it's something they devoted themselves to. They gave time and attention to it. And it was their relationship with each other in the context of their relationship with Jesus. That's what they were devoting themselves to, this wonderful whole koinonia. It's not only being mates together, you know, which I think is great, you know, to do stuff together, sports or walks. It is that, but it's in the context of who we are in Christ. So there's a sort of flow. I'll try and unpack that in a few sec- minutes, really, because I think it all flows together. Let's, let's just remember that koinonia means basically giving and taking. It means sharing. It always means that. It means it with God. We receive from God, but we also give to him. It's a giving and taking. That's koinonia. And koinonia this way is exactly the same. It, that's the essence of the word. It's sharing. And we need to all be caught up in a giving and taking cycle with God and with each other. It's an expression of the reality of our faith and it involves both love and humility because it, actually the humility probably kicks in when you receive and the taking. Some people find it a lot even easier to give 
but you need to receive as well. You're obviously from God, but now if we're thinking as we are for the moment horizontally, you need to give and receive from fellow believers. Fellowship is a reality then when we understand this and desire to give to each other, to help each other, perhaps practically, but actually also spiritually. We want to help each other grow in God. And when we desire that others help us to grow in God, help us and encourage us and provoke us and maybe practically help us and we gladly receive their practical help, whether it be a visit or a gift or something else. There's not obstacles, which we'll briefly talk about before I finish, that might stop us doing that. We let those obstacles go. So I think real koinonia, horizontally, real fellowship, happens in a multitude of ways. It's not one thing. It's not like we have fellowship when we have a cup of tea and a cake together. I think it could happen then and does frequently. So having meals together is a context. But so is preaching. This is koinonia. I'm sharing it with you. You're receiving from me. I receive from you actually as well. It's, it's in worship together. It's in praying together. It is in those classic events that we do as church. That isn't outside of fellowship. That is koinonia. We're having fellowship with the Father. We're having fellowship with each other. We're giving and taking. Ideally, that should be happening because the gifts of the Spirit are moving and people are receiving from one another as they hear prophetic words or words of encouragement. It will, I hope, certainly happen in small groups, in our community groups, but of course that's not the only place. But that is one of the places that koinonia will happen, and that mustn't be played down or downgraded. It is right to see it that way. We need to be giving and taking in that context. Of course, in informal contexts, it will happen. Friendship circles, chats, meals together, sports together, walks. It will happen when we help each other, when people just say, can I help you? That can be with time, that can be with effort, it can be, of course, with money or, 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 or possessions. But I don't think any of these is superior to the other, and none of them is what fellowship is. Fellowship happens in all those contexts, but it needs to happen. We just need to be stirred up that we are people who coin an ear together, who fellowship whenever we can, whatever context. We do have to work at it, because there are some things that hinder it. Now, these are a sermon in themselves, and don't worry, you're not going to get the full sermon. But I do feel I need to refer to them. What sort of things hinder us really being devoted to fellowship, really working it, and and learning more about God together and giving more to each other? Well, there could be many, many things, but I think there's four things that I would say are pretty common that hinder fellowship, and I think I've observed them often in context. I would say I observe them at times here, to be frank with you, but I'm not saying to you, whoa, this is a, you know, I'm having a go at you. I'm saying I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself. I think some of them are more obviously sometimes a problem than others, but they all need to be laid aside. These are just four. I know the list could be longer. Self-sufficiency. I think that's a big one. It's a big one for England. It's a big one for modern Britain. It's a big one for Winchester. Because people have a lot of personal resources. They've got a lot of ability to do stuff. They've got a lot of useful ways of handling life. People are pretty self-sufficient. But actually, it can be an obstacle to real fellowship and koinonia. And we need to sort of almost step back from our self-sufficiency. We do actually need each other. God has ordained it that you need each other. It is the ordination, it is, the, it is the, the decree of the living God that you are not self-sufficient. Sorry, it's a lie. 
Not in every way. I mean, I'm sure most of you handle your own finances, for example, but not everybody does that. But you may, but there are all sorts of areas where you're not self-sufficient. And in some contexts, that last one is very commonly not true. There's lots of people, lots of people that need help with practical things. But there are other things. There is a a flow, and it can be very ordinary. It can be very just like, I'm not self-sufficient personally with technical things. So I have to humbly be childlike to someone like Stuart Hanscom when we had a new computer, when I came back. I'm literally childlike. I am literally being told what buttons to press so I, can't, I do not just completely make a mess of it. Now, it's, that's an amusing one, but it's actually quite humbling for someone at my age and standing and intelligence and general, <laughs> general sort of togetherness that I, I'm actually phoning up and saying, I can't make this thing connect to anything. And I've been given it in a context in which everything's supposed to be working by the techie guy who set it up, who's, you know, paid to do that. But actually, I can't even hardly switch it on because the things go different. Now, now that, that, so then, then you get a, a humbling experience where you receive, and you actually receive very like people will almost childlikely say, "Right, look, well, I'll write it on a piece of paper. You do that, then you do that, you do that." But actually, it's very blessing. It blesses me ultimately. But there's a, I don't want to look like that. I want to be self-sufficient. Thank you. I want. I can handle these things. Well, okay, that's so, that. One, and a bit of a strange one perhaps for some of you, I think I'm a bit odd, but, but actually we need to be careful we don't put this barrier up. All sorts of things, actually it looks okay, can have actually some quite nasty roots. Pride, sin roots. Pride can make self-sufficient. Guilt, we don't want people to know the truth about us. Well, I'm afraid real koinonia will mean some people will, not everybody, but some, you need to be open to sharing the truth. That's guilt. God can deal with that. It's a sin, really, to be protecting yourself out of that. There's an answer in Jesus. Fear, of course, a big one. Terrified of what other people will think. Terrified that they won't think right of you or well of you. It's very common, but it's sinful, actually. And it needs repentance. We need to not let these things hinder us. I'll be quick. Externalism. I think that's a common one. It's a common one with human beings. What that means is, I want to put on a performance. I want to do the correct thing in public And fellowship, of course, means being open to other believers. And that you don't just have an external sort of you that that ticks all the boxes of your particular setup. You're able to be honest and just to go beyond the external thing. Again, externalism probably reflects a pride problem. It may even reflect, interesting enough, I think, a poor relationship with God. Because I think one of the answers to get rid of an externalist thinking where I just want people to see the right appearance, one of the answers is to be open with God. And if you really do business with God, it's much easier to be open with other people. If, if God knows the truth about you and you cry out your truth to God and you weep through your doubts and you, and you really do have a shout at God sometimes, and just be honest with God, it's a lot easier just to be honest with other people. So sometimes it's a good one to reflect back. If I really, really am quite hooked into just wanting a public face, everybody thinks that I do the right thing, just take a step back and think, what's my relationship with God? Am I being honest with God? Do I walk openly with him? That's where the, the answer, I think, starts. Another one's bitterness. This can happen. If you've been a Christian a while, I'm sad to say you will have things that maybe haven't worked out for you. So... This usually works out in a sort of suspicion, really, a bitterness and a a protection, and I'm not going to make myself vulnerable. There may be a sense of injustice from something in the past, a feeling of betrayal by something, or jealousy. 
jealousy of others' position or your lack of it in some context. But it all feeds a protection of yourself and even a, a, a sort of protesting, controversial, divisive thinking. And it spoils koinonia. And it needs to be dealt with. You need to do business with God. You need to get people praying with you. We don't want any roots of bitterness spoiling our koinonia. You know, don't let injustice... God's been good to you and merciful. You say, well, not everybody else has. Well, no, but they weren't very good to Jesus. We don't live like that. We live forgiving. We live where we are with God, not where we are with... It's not... My well-being depends on God's view of me, not other people's view of me. And I need to live out of that. True fellowship actually also, ultimately, and this is wonderfully releasing, is ultimately about promoting other people. True fellowship is really about wanting other believers to do well, in whatever context. And so you do genuinely want to promote people in the best possible way. You want them to succeed. Yes, you can criticise. It's not, I'm not, I mean, criticism's okay, provided that motive is totally there, because I want this to work, because I want it to be better, because I want those people to be successful, so I can see something might need changing. And if it's got that pure motive, it's fine. And that will also moderate criticism. It will come with restraint. It will come with grace. It will come with a desire to win and not to lose someone. It will come with awareness that I'm not perfect either. (laughs) So it's not that you can't say things that are like not comfortable, but it's that the motive is always to promote. And that makes for healthy, healthy, healthy koinonia. Here's the fourth one, elitism. Now this is an interesting one. What do I mean by that? Well, I think... Koinonia, fellowship, is spoilt and hindered by inner circles, cliques. Now, you get those in most gatherings of human beings, to be honest with you. But actually, you don't just get one, because often the people who say, oh, there's an inner circle, don't realise that they might be in one as well. There's usually interlocking inner circles, or inter, not locking, interfacing or whatever. You know, it's usually much more complex than there's just one. What you do is you get groups of people who form around what I would loosely call the we are the ones mentality. We are the ones. Now, it can be we are the ones who do all the work. We are the ones who sort it all out. It could be we are the ones who understand what's wrong. We are the ones who don't do any of the work because we know it's not worth doing. We are the ones who feel marginalised. We are the ones... You know, you go on and on and on, but it's an exclusive mentality. It's a false fellowship. It's, if you like... fleshly or even demonic sometimes, fellowship ring. Because real fellowship is open and exclu- inclusive, not exclusive. And it's open to say we're all one. We're not the ones, we're all one. <laughs> and that's how church works. That's how Jesus has made it work. We can form little circles around all sorts of things. Structurally, it can happen around eldership. I hope and pray it doesn't. But it can happen around leadership. It can happen around ministries. It can happen around... You know, I don't know, being to children's workers and musicians or being administration. It can happen around a particular understanding of scripture. We all understand that. It can happen around a grievance, real or imagined. It's a multitude of ways you get these sort of cliques and circles, but they are not how you build church. As they happen, and they do happen, just like the rain comes from heaven, you know, even on a nice day like, you know, on a day when you're on holiday, um, you know, it, it, these things happen and they say, oh, why did that happen? But you have to come through that. You have to say, no, no, this isn't koinonia. Koinonia is an openness to others. And it's everybody's responsibility to devote ourselves to fellowship. It's what we all need to do all the time. 
It is all of our responsibility. It's not they over there have got to get me into fellowship. Nobody should be talking like that. It's just not how it works. What it works is an openness to others. And sometimes that means an extension of vulnerability. It always does, actually. That you go a bit beyond where you're comfortable, but you somehow reach out. Now, you won't know everybody, but you can begin to build an atmosphere where there's real koinonia and flow. And you can't box it into one thing, just structurally, but it should happen within the structure, as I've said. But it will happen elsewhere as well. And that's what being a Christian is all about. And that's really the burden of my heart for this morning. I've probably spent a little longer on that than I might have done, but we've still got time to break bread. And when we break bread, I want to have us this verse in our minds. So it'll be the last one on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10:17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Now, here this morning, we're a bit of a random collection, humanly. Quite a lot of you might not be uh, official members or whatever of Winchester Family Church. That's fine. If you love Jesus and feed on him, we want you to take bread and wine with us and be in fellowship with you. You can have recently come to know Jesus or you can have been known Jesus a long time and just be visiting us from somewhere else. The only thing I'd say is if you aren't a Christian, and you know that, you wouldn't call yourself a real Christian, and you'd be open with it and say, no, I don't really follow. I'm interested, I'm here. I think you are responsible and to be honoured by saying, look, I won't take the bread and wine. Because it really does mean, when you take this bread, that I am feeding on Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my Saviour. I have koinonia with the Father and the Son. And that's the big thing we're going to think about. But I also have koinonia with these other brothers and sisters. And it really doesn't matter if you're not a member of Winchester Family Church. We're talking about people who feed on Christ in just what we're doing here. And, and so... What I'm trying to say is, if you're not a Christian, it would be appropriate for you not probably take bread and wine. But in a moment, when we do it, you can, I hope, feel not excluded like you if you're in a... I'm going to ask you to do this in small groups in a minute, which will give some of you scares. But never mind, we're going to do it. Just little groups. And we're just going to love each other. We're going to thank Jesus together. And we're going to pray for any any needs in the group. That's all we're going to do. But if you don't want the bread and wine, you can just say, no, I'd like to leave it. And just explain. Say, I'm just thinking. Please... Other members of the group, don't jump down their throat and try and give them four spiritual laws. Just say, that's great, it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. I want you to feel included, but it would be appropriate only to take the bread and wine if you have Jesus as your Lord. Does that make sense? Let's stand together. And can we have the musicians back up, please, for a few minutes anyway? I think I I don't want us to lose the first point. Uh the vertical you know it is absolutely profound what we have come into as Christians I don't know if we've got a song that could just focus us I'm sure there must be a number um, to thank Jesus for a moment for what he's done for us and just to corporately with one song express our love and delight in who he is and then what we're going to do is we're actually today going to break bread in, in smaller groups and one person from the group can come and get some bread and uh, we'll do it that way. But let's start off just for a moment to sing at least one song uh, as a whole with one voice and mind, as it were, uh, worshipping him. Thank you, Jim. <laughs>